Chapter 4, Parts 3, 4, and 5 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 4, Parts 3, 4, and 5. Part 3. His door was flung open, and a compact young man in uniform appeared, carrying Mr. Butteridge's portfolio, rucksack, and shaving glass. "'I say,' he said in faultless English as he entered. He had a beaming face and a sort of pinkish-blonde hair. "'Fancy you being Butteridge!' he slapped Bert's meager luggage down. "'We'd have started,' he said, in another half-hour.' You didn't give yourself much time. He surveyed Bert curiously. His gaze rested for a fraction of a moment on the sandals. You ought to have come on your flying machine, Mr. Butteridge. He didn't wait for an answer. The prince says I've got to look after you. Naturally, he can't see you now, but he thinks your coming's providential. Last grace of heaven. Like a sign. Hello. He stood still and listened. Outside there was a going to and fro of feet, a sound of distant bugles. Suddenly taken up and echoed close at hand, men called out in loud tones, short, sharp, seemingly vital things, and were answered distantly. A bell jangled and feet went down the corridor. Then came a stillness, more distracting than sound, and then a great gurgling and rushing and splashing of water the young man's eyebrows lifted he hesitated and dashed out of the room presently came a stupendous bang to vary the noises without then a distant cheering the young man reappeared they're running the water out of the ballonet already what water asked bert the water that anchored us artful dodge eh bert tried to take it in of course said the compact young man. You don't understand. A gentle quivering crept upon Bert's senses. That's the engine, said the compact young man approvingly. Now we shan't be long. Another long listening interval. The cabin swayed. By Jove, we're starting already, he cried. We're starting. Starting, cried Bert, sitting up. Where? But the young man was out of the room again. There were noises of German in the passage, and other nerve-shaking sounds. The swaying increased. The young man reappeared. We're off. Right enough. I say, said Bert, where are we starting? I wish you'd explain. What's this place? I don't understand. What? cried the young man. You don't understand? No, I'm all dazed-like from that crack on the knob I got. Where are we? Where are we starting? Don't you know where you are? What is this? Not a bit of it. What's all the swaying and the row? What a lark! cried the young man. I say, what a thundering lark! Don't you know? We're off to America. And you haven't realized? You've just caught us by a neck. You're on the blessed old flagship with the prince. You won't miss anything. Whatever's on, you bet the Vaterland will be there. Us. Off to America? 
Rather. In an airship? What do you think? Me. Going to America on an airship. Here, I say, I don't want to go. I want to walk about on my legs. Let me get out. I didn't understand. He made a dive for the door. The young man arrested Bert with a gesture, took hold of a strap, lifted up a panel in the padded wall, and a window appeared. Look, he said. Side by side, they looked out. Gaw, said Bert. We're going up. We are, said the young man cheerfully. Fast. They were rising in the air smoothly and quietly, and moving slowly to the throb of the engine athwart the aeronautic park. Down below, it stretched dimly geometrical in the darkness, picked out at regular intervals by glow-worm spangles of light. One black gap in the long line of gray, round-backed airships marked the position from which the Vaterland had come. Beside it, a second monster now rose softly, released from its bonds and cables into the air. Then, taking a beautifully exact distance, a third ascended, and then a fourth. "'Too late, Mr. Butteridge,' the young man remarked. "'We're off. I dare say it is a bit of a shock to you, but there you are. The prince said you'd have to come.' "'Look here,' said Bert. "'I really am dazed. What's this thing? Where are we going?' "'This, Mr. Butteridge,' said the young man, taking pains to be explicit, "'is an airship. It's the flagship of Prince Karl Albert. This is the German air fleet.' and it is going over to America to give that spirited people what for. The only thing we were at all uneasy about was your invention, and here you are. But, you a German? asked Bert. Lieutenant Kurt, luft Lieutenant Kurt, at your service. But you speak English. Mother was English, went to school in England, afterwards Rhodes Scholar. German nonetheless for that detailed for the present, Mr. Butteridge, to look after you. You're shaken by your fall. It's all right, really. They're going to buy your machine and everything. You sit down and take it quite calmly. You'll soon get the hang of the position. Part 4 Bert sat down on the locker, collecting his mind, and the young man talked to him about the airship. He was really a very tactful young man indeed, in a natural sort of way. "'Dare say all this is new to you,' he said. "'Not your sort of machine. "'These cabins aren't half bad.' He got up and walked around the little apartment, showing its points. "'Here is the bed,' he said, whipping down a couch from the wall and throwing it back again with a click. "'Here are toilet things.' And he opened a neatly arranged cupboard. "'Not much washing. "'No water we've got. "'No water at all except for drinking.' No baths or anything until we get to America and land. Rub over with loofah, one pint of hot for shaving. That's all. In the locker below you are rugs and blankets. You will need them presently. They say it gets cold. I don't know. Never been up before. Except a little work with gliders, which is mostly going down. Three quarters of the chaps in the fleet haven't. Here's a folding chair and table behind the door. Compact. Eh? He took the chair and balanced it on his little finger. Pretty light, eh? Aluminum and magnesium alloy, and a vacuum inside. All these cushions stuffed with hydrogen. Foxy. The whole ship like that. 
and not a man in the fleet except the prince and one or two others, over eleven stone. Couldn't sweat the prince, you know. We'll go all over the thing tomorrow. I'm frightfully keen on it. He beamed at Bert. You do look young, he remarked. I always thought you'd be an old man with a beard, a sort of philosopher. I don't know why one should expect clever people always to be old. I do. Bert parried that compliment a little awkwardly, and then the lieutenant was struck with the riddle why Herr Butteridge had not come in his own flying machine. It's a long story, said Bert. Look here, he said abruptly, I wish you'd lend me a pair of slippers or something. I'm regular sick of these sandals. They're rotten things. I've been trying them for a friend. Right-o! The ex-road scholar whisked out of the room and reappeared with a considerable choice of footwear. Pumps, cloth bath slippers, and a purple pair adorned with golden sunflowers. But these he repented of at the last moment. I don't even wear them myself, he said. Only brought him in the zeal of the moment. He laughed confidently. Had him worked for me. In Oxford. By a friend. Take him everywhere. So Bert chose the pumps. The lieutenant broke into a cheerful snigger. Here we are, trying on slippers, he said, and the world going by like a panorama below. Rather a lark, eh? Look. Bert peeped with him out of the window, looking from the bright pettiness of the red and silver cabin into a dark immensity. The land below, except for a lake, was black and featureless, and the other airships were hidden. See more outside, said the lieutenant. Let's go. There's a sort of little gallery. He led the way into the long passage, which was lit by one small electric light, passed some notices in German to an open balcony and a light ladder and gallery of metal lattice overhanging empty space. Bert followed his leader down to the gallery slowly and cautiously. From it he was able to watch the wonderful spectacle of the first air fleet flying through the night. They flew in a wedge-shaped formation, the Vaterland highest and leading, the tail receding into the corners of the sky. They flew in long, regular undulations, great dark fish-like shapes, showing hardly any light at all, the engines making a throb, throb, throbbing sound that was very audible out on the gallery. They were going at a level of five or six thousand feet, and rising steadily. Below, the country lay silent, a clear darkness dotted and lined out with clusters of furnaces, and the lit streets of a group of big towns. The world seemed to lie in a bowl, the overhanging bulk of the airship above hid all but the lowest levels of the sky. They watched the landscape for a space. "'Jolly, it must be to invent things,' said the lieutenant suddenly. "'How did you come to think of your machine first? "'Worked it out.' said Bert, after a pause. Just ground away at it. Our people are frightfully keen on you. They thought the British had got you. Weren't the British keen? In a way, said Bert. Still, it's a long story. I think it's an immense thing to invent. I couldn't invent a thing to save my life. They both fell silent, watching the darkened world and following their thoughts until a bugle summoned them to a belated dinner. Bert was suddenly alarmed. "'Don't you have to dress and things?' he said. "'I've always been too hard at science and things to go into society and all that.' 
"'No fear,' said Kurt. "'Nobody's got more than the clothes they wear. "'We're traveling light. "'You might perhaps take your overcoat off. "'They've an electric radiator each end of the room.' "'And so presently Bert found himself sitting to eat "'in the presence of the German Alexander, "'that great and puissant Prince, Prince Karl Albert, "'the warlord, the hero of two hemispheres.' He was a handsome, blond man, with deep-set eyes, a snub nose, upturned moustache, and long white hands. A strange-looking man. He sat higher than the others, under a black eagle with widespread wings and the German imperial flags. He was, as it were, enthroned, and it struck Bert greatly that as he ate he did not look at people, but over their heads, like one who sees visions. Twenty officers of various ranks stood about the table. And Bert. They all seemed extremely curious to see the famous Butteridge, and their astonishment at his appearance was ill-controlled. The prince gave him a dignified salutation, to which, by an inspiration, he bowed. Standing next to the prince was a brown-faced, wrinkled man with silver spectacles and fluffy, dingy, gray side-whiskers, who regarded Bert with a peculiar and disconcerting attention. The company sat after ceremonies Bert could not understand. At the other end of the table was the bird-faced officer Bert had dispossessed, still looking hostile and whispering about Bert to his neighbor. Two soldiers waited. The dinner was a plain one, a soup, some fresh mutton, and cheese, and there was very little talk. A curious solemnity indeed brooded over everyone. Partly this was reaction after the intense toil and restrained excitement of starting. Partly it was the overwhelming sense of strange new experiences, of portentous adventure. The prince was lost in thought. He roused himself to drink to the emperor in champagne, and the company cried, Hawk! like men repeating responses in church. No smoking was permitted, but some of the officers went down to the little open gallery to chew tobacco. No lights whatever were safe amidst that bundle of inflammable things. Bert suddenly felt yawning and shivering. He was overwhelmed by a sense of his own insignificance amidst these great rushing monsters of the air. He felt life was too big for him, too much for him altogether. He said something to Kurt about his head, went up the steep ladder from the swaying little gallery into the airship again, and so, as if it were a refuge, to bed. Part 5 Bert slept for a time, and then his sleep was broken by dreams. Mostly, he was fleeing from formless terrors down an interminable passage in an airship, the passage paved at first with ravenous trapdoors, and then with openwork canvas of the most careless description. Gaw! said Bert, turning over after his seventh fall through infinite space that night. He sat up in the darkness and nursed his knees. The progress of the airship was not nearly so smooth as a balloon. He could feel a regular swaying up, 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 and then down, 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 and the throbbing and tremulous quiver of the engines. His mind began to teem with memories, more memories, and more. Through them, like a struggling swimmer in broken water, came the perplexing question, What am I to do tomorrow? Tomorrow, Kurt had told him, the prince's secretary, the Graf von Winterfield, would come to him and discuss his flying machine, and then he would see the prince. 
He would have to stick it out now that he was Butteridge and sell his invention. And then, if they found him out, he had a vision of infuriated Butteridges. Suppose, after all, he owned up, pretended it was their misunderstanding. He began to scheme devices for selling the secret and circumventing Butteridge. What should he ask for the thing? Somehow, twenty thousand pounds struck him as about the sum indicated. He fell into that despondency that flies in wait in the small hours. He had got too big a job on. Too big a job. Memories swamped his scheming. Where was I this time last night? He recapitulated his evenings tediously and lengthily. Last night he had been up above the clouds in Butteridge's balloon. He thought of the moment when he dropped through them and saw the cold twilight sea close below. He still remembered that disagreeable incident with a nightmare vividness. And the night before, he and Grubb had been looking for cheap lodgings at Littlestone in Kent. How remote that seemed now. It might be years ago. For the first time, he thought of his fellow Desert Dervish, left with the two red-painted bicycles on Dimchurch Sands. "'He won't make much of a show of it, and not without me, anyhow. He did have the treasury, such as it was.' in his pocket. The night before that was bank holiday night, and they had sat discussing their minstrel enterprise, drawing up a program and rehearsing steps. And the night before was Whit Sunday. Lord, cried Bert, what a doing that motorcycle give me. He recalled the empty flapping of the eviscerated cushion, the feeling of impotence as the flames rose again. From among the confused memories of that tragic flare, one little figure emerged very bright and poignantly sweet. Edna, crying back reluctantly from the departing motor-car. See you tomorrow, Bert? Other memories of Edna clustered round that impression. They led Bert's mind step by step to an agreeable state that found expression in, I'll marry her if she don't look out and then, in a flash, it followed in his mind that if he sold the Butteridge secret, he could. Suppose, after all, he did it get twenty thousand pounds. Such sums had been paid. With that, he could buy house and garden, buy new clothes beyond dreaming, buy a motor, travel, have every delight of the civilized life as he knew it, for himself and Edna. Of course, risks were involved. I'll have old Butteridge on my track, I expect. He meditated upon that. He declined again to despondency. As yet, he was only in the beginning of the adventure. He had still to deliver the goods and draw the cash. And before that, just now, he was by no means on his way home. He was flying off to America to fight there. Not much fighting, he considered. All our own way. Still, if a shell did happen to hit the Vaterland on the underside... Suppose I ought to make my will. He lay back for some time composing wills, chiefly in favor of Edna. He had settled now it was to be twenty thousand pounds. He left a number of minor legacies. The wills became more and more meandering and extravagant. He woke from the eighth repetition of his nightmare fall through space. This flying gets on one's nerves, he said. He could feel the airship diving down down, down, then slowly swinging to up, 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 throb, 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 quivered the engine. 
He got up presently and wrapped himself about with Mr. Butteridge's overcoat and all the blankets, for the air was very keen. Then he peeped out of the window to see a grey dawn breaking over clouds, then turned up his light and bolted his door, sat down to the table and produced his chest protector. He smoothed the crumpled plans with his hand and contemplated them. Then he referred to the other drawings in the portfolio. Twenty thousand pounds. If he worked it right, it was worth trying anyhow. Presently he opened the drawer in which Kurt had put paper and writing materials. Bert Smallways was by no means a stupid person, and up to a certain limit he had not been badly educated. His board school had taught him to draw up to certain limits, taught him to calculate and understand a specification. If, at that point, his country had tired of its efforts and handed him over unfinished to scramble for a living in an atmosphere of advertisements and individual enterprise, that was really not his fault. He was as his state had made him, and the reader must not imagine, because he was a little cockney cad, that he was absolutely incapable of grasping the idea of the Butteridge flying machine. But he found it stiff and perplexing. His motorcycle and Grubb's experiments and the mechanical drawing he had done in Standard 7 all helped him out, and, moreover, the maker of these drawings, whoever he was, had been anxious to make his intentions plain. Bert copied sketches. He made notes. He made a quite tolerable and intelligent copy of the essential drawings and sketches of the others. Then he fell into a meditation upon them. At last he rose with a sigh, folded up the originals that had formerly been in his chest protector, and put them into the breast pocket of his jacket, and then, very carefully, deposited the copies he had made in the place of the originals. He had no very clear plan in his mind in doing this, except that he hated the idea of altogether parting with the secret. For a long time he meditated profoundly, nodding. Then he turned out his light and went to bed again, and schemed himself to sleep. End of chapter 4, parts 3, 4, and 5 Recording by William Tomko